Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Trevor Strunk, Hagelbot on Twitter, and I have with me today one of the developers of, uh, I would say at this point, kind of the cult classic. I don't I don't know if you would agree with me on that or not, but uh, kind of cult classic indie uh, video game uh, paratopic. Uh, I'm here with uh, Jessica Harvey. Jessica, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. No, thanks for coming on. It's, uh, it's really great to have you. I am... Um, I actually had I've been I've had Paratopic uh, for ages, and initially it was meant to be something I was going to stream with a friend, so we sort of held off on that. And then when I found out uh, that I we might be able to get you on the show, I was when we were chatting about that, I was like, "Ooh, I'm going to play it like before I, I talk to her." Uh, and so I finally was able to. Play, it's been like on my desktop, tempting me forever, and so I finally played it tonight. And um, it's a really special game. I, I think. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm. Thanks for. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to play um, a single sitting, uh, short little surreal horror game. Um, I don't usually get that kind of pleasure. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, before we get started, talk to us a little bit about what you like. What you do in in uh, in gaming. So I I always use the sort of like catch all of developer, but. Um, you know, you actually, uh, Paratopic was, was kind enough to include all the things you did, uh, every single member of the team. Uh, but for people who haven't played that game, and if you haven't, you should, it's, uh, I believe it's actually on sale right now, but even if it isn't, you should just, you should just pay full price, um, <laughs> and, and get it on itch or steam. Um, but the, um, the game's short. It's, uh, I would say it took me about two hours. Um, and it's, it's worth playing and replaying, but if people haven't yet, what do you what do you do like what is your what is your sort of like area of expertise in in development um i'm a fundamentally i'm a generalist when it comes to the meat of development um i do with paratopic i did the visuals i did the um the art um i did the code and mm -hmm. we shared design responsibilities between the three of us okay um, but primarily what I try to do with games is to create create spaces uh, for people to occupy. Um, very liminal and less visible with Paratopic, um, but adjacent to a lot of cybernetic philosophies. Um, and discussion thereof. Um, it's the sort of Mark Fisher type of territory that I try sure. to express and inhabit. So, I mean, uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Like, I, what other what other work have you done? I, I'm familiar with Paratopic and uh, Tangiers, both of which we'll end up talking about. Um, but uh, what other what other material kind of comes to mind when you're thinking about cybernetic spaces, either your own or or someone else's work that you uh, enjoy? Oh, within games, I don't think that it is something I can easily pull out examples mm. of. Um, like way back when, yeah, when was this game back to about 2012 when I first started getting into game development? A 
big motivation for that was me thinking, okay, no one, no one's making the games that sort of speak to me on a very fundamental existential level. So, uh-huh. hey, market gap. Presumably, if I want niche <laughs> weird stuff, then there's going to be I don't know at least ten other people who's gonna want to play the same sort of things. Um, Fair enough. So yeah, it is. In terms of sort of recreational media, um, outside of philosophy textbooks. Yeah, I, I mean the the immediate thing I think of is like a Donna Haraway style consideration of of uh, of cybernetics and yeah, I mean, like uh, that's not really there in video games. Cyclonopedia. Okay. Um, have you come across this before? I have not. Okay, Cyclonopedia is um, it's a strange bag. It's generally termed as uh, theory fiction. It mixes a fairly hard philosophy with a somewhat more traditional narrative. Um, oh, wow. It's written okay. by... Uh, probably get the name pronunciation wrong. Uh, Regan Egastani. Okay. Is that right? Sorry, let me just... Uh, Regan Neger... Uh, Reza Negarastani. Um, okay. uh, an Iranian author. And... Um, the book is a sort of starts off with the traditional Lovecraftian narrative of um, it, I think it's an academic or a journalist um, goes to the Middle East. Um, I think it might actually be Turkey. Um, okay. The lead character starts off um, to meet someone they met online. Um, person doesn't show up. They're given a load of papers. They follow the trail of evidence. But fundamentally, they get into a sort of a landscape and territory, drawing comparisons to the oil beneath the sands in the Middle East and the sort of occult Lovecraftian cosmic horror that possesses mankind and spawns occult wars. And uh, it follows the equivalencies between the sort of geopolitical uh, cybernetics and um, the cosmic horror narrative line. That's really interesting because I mean, like, not not to not to draw too obvious a line, but like it, it reminds me of the way that, um, say, uh, Paratopic dealt with horror, where like the the game itself was I, there were there were a couple of jump scares, but like. Primarily, it doesn't deal with horror in the way that I would say a lot of uh, traditional horror games do. It's much more of a horror of, like, uh, I mean, I could say it in a lot of ways, a horror of sort of routine, a horror of uh, obligation, of, like, a long task left unfinished, of just, like, open spaces. I mean, there's a ton there's a ton there about that. And it feels like that that idea of, like, the, the connectedness of... Um, something like oil to uh to the land and that being sort of the the way in which cosmic horror expresses itself makes a ton of sense given that context oh absolutely and i mean sort of any wide-ranging system um most pertinently capital Mm -hmm. um the way the tendrils of that emanate and penetrate everything and sort of with capital as the example you can only you can never actually truly see capital only aspects that are symptomatic of it um right it is that cosmic horror that is just outside of our perception but it is all-encompassing yeah and i mean that's sort of like the 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 way in which uh someone like Lovecraft, even with the obvious sort of like, you know, uh, extremely racist baggage, uh, that he, that he brings with him, uh, can, uh, can kind of produce, uh, a compelling reading of, of the moment. I'd like, I, any, anytime, uh, the sort of like thing that you can't see that drives you mad is capital that speaks to me as well. Yeah. And so with Paratopic, we would, much of the sort of general horror was tried to be pulled into the sort of the overall landscape and territory that you occupy within the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, cause a lot of that was, um, 
Doc has lived in sort of that part of America all his life. Okay. And then it's, uh, like, it's basically like border border America or like sort of like California sorry? California Mexico border. Um, there's a few sort of non-geographic lines in there, um, but the space we had in mind when making the game was a sort of amalgamation of Texas through okay. to Kansas through to the Rust Belt. Great. Um, the the rusting shipping region. containers were, were a good semiotic for that. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, Doc had lived there all his life, and I moved from England to Texas um, and lived there for about three years and found it to be one of the most fundamentally alienating the way that you've got this culture um, and mixture of urban and rural spaces... Um, but the sort of human development that is completely separated from any moorings of time and space. It's just big open plains yeah, with stuff slammed down on it. Um, and when it gets a bit old, it's either left there or it's torn down and rebuilt. You don't have the same constraints and sort of onion layers of development that you do in the old world. Um, and finding myself into that space was just horrific i found it i mean is that sort of like that that um i like that description of the onion like development of the old world um and particularly that like the kind of like central um i won't say central plot point because that's misleading but like sort of the central objective that you're kind of teased with at the beginning of paratopic and and kind of before you understand the game itself is um, are, are videotapes and they look like blank videotapes. And so this idea of, uh, you know, videotapes being something that one can um, watch and rewatch and re-record, uh, that feels like an old world thing, but in the idea of it wearing out feels very much like the planes. Like how do you understand technology and, and, and sort of like modernity coexisting, uh, you know, and I guess I can, I can cheat and ask you both of these because you've lived in both places, but like the UK and then also in sort of the, the nightmare uh, world of, of Texas, as you've described it. Who? Well, big question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How to uh, throw that down succinctly. Um... You don't have to be simple. That, that, that <laughs> it's a good, it's a good uh, cheat. You don't have to be simple. Well, there's a sort of distinct pairing between what I'm doing with Tangiers and what was kind of done with Paratopping and what will be followed up with if we ever do a sequel to Paratopic uh -huh. um, was the direct contrast between Old World and New World modernity. Mm -hmm. Um and how that really intersects with the concept of lost futures, um, mm. whereby if we go back, going back across the Atlantic to the United Kingdom, modernity had its big moment. Um, it had its big moment during the post-war reconstruction of the country. Um, England was in ruins. We needed to build things very quickly. We needed to build things very affordably. <clears throat> and this was just as brutalism had been manifesting itself and you had lots of bright young architects bouncing off inspiration from Corbusier. Right. Um with this opportunity to engage in large-scale social manipulation through the facets of modernity. Um, and it all went to shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the attempts to rebuild were met with corruption, standard 
bureaucratic limitations, um, a lack of long-term investment, and so many of these bright, world-changing schemes just ended up as shitholds of social decay and failed policy. Um, Hmm. So in the UK, modernity... is very much the lost hope. It is what could have been, um, Mm. but never was. Um, Brutalism is both, which is sort of the main bullet point for modernity in the UK, I would say. Modernity is both a tragedy of what we never had, but is also a... Um, obelisk to momentous social harm done to the working class of the country. Mm. So that's how it stands back home. Here, you never got that. You just get little bubbles of ideas which appear and then disappear. There is no long-term narrative in the heart of this country, I don't really think, because you've got the whole permanent liminality of time. Um, Everything's rusting, but nothing's all that old. Um, That seems right. Like, I think think one of the things about... um, It's something you said about the the way that... um, It's something you said about the way that... I think I have to say this, like uh, wide open space kind of conditions a a feeling of alienation and a feeling of disconnectedness. Right. Like, I think, I think you're totally right in thinking that the, the center of the country and particularly like the, the States that are huge, um, like your Texas's or your, um, Alaska's or even, I mean, you know, your Pennsylvania's your whatever. Um, and then your, your, your desert states, your plain states, where like there's just so much that having a project is simply, you know, a long-term project is kind of unrealistic if you can just kind of let go of it and go down the road a ways. <laughs> yeah, so to follow that up a little, um, if we look at sort of old world modernity as something that was never to started off with hope and got subsumed by the establishment. Um, Both subsumed and fucked royally. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But here... (coughs) Sorry. Modernity is just quite representative. It is inherently exploitative. Um, It's exploitative to resources. It's exploitative to the landscape. It's exploitative to the people around it. Um, Mm -hmm. it is this very colonial form of modernity that makes no disguise of that. Um, No disguise to its exploitative nature. Um, In some ways, it deserves an applaud for being more honest. (laughs) True. (laughs) I can see that. I, I wonder... So, like... That kind of honesty. Uh, one of the one of the things I found kind of compelling about, and I I don't know how much to touch on the the plot such as it is of Paratopic because I feel it's a bit more surreal than than would be suggested if I told you there was like a plot to it. I'm not sure how I would tell you what the plot is, for instance. Um, I was going to ask if you had a thought about about that yourself, so uh, we can save that for then. But the you know, you run into these characters, and a couple of them will talk to you. And the one that sort of, I think, probably it certainly captured my imagination, and I'm sure I'm not the only person, um, is the um, the character who is the um, what's what how uh, basically kind of runs the weird uh, convenience store that you end up at a couple times. Convenience store slash uh, um, the gas selling station. station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I found him fascinating because he, he would just honestly tell you about what was in the area. He sort of had like clear interests and, and, and like biases and 
had like a very pointed sort of personality that you can't fully engage with. Um, and, and one of the things I was fascinated by while playing the game was that this just kind of shows up in a world that also feels completely uh, uh, featureless. Like, especially when you're in the driving sections of the game, it feels like you're driving through just featureless blobs. And that feels intentional. I'm not trying to say, like, the game felt like it didn't have a, uh, a kind of uh, personality because that's certainly not the case. But, um, I mean, what, what was sort of the balance there? I mean, there seems to be a lot of reason to, to make a, uh, a featureless void uh, if you're talking about America. And there seems to be a lot of reasons to make you know, just a bunch of people in the featureless void that you can speak to. Um, I find it super interesting the way that you manage that balance. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. Well, I can't talk about the actual hands-on writing since that was all, all dark. Um, Fair but enough. conceptually... I feel like conception in this game, like the, the concept counts I, as much as I've ever seen in any other game, <laughs> you know, in, in concert with the writing. Like, it doesn't feel as if, like, those two things are, you know, completely mm. different. Um, conceptually, what appeals to me, and I try to convey a lot within work, is the idea of these featureless, very blank, very alienating spaces mm. that nonetheless have these little pockets of warmth in them when you engage with other people. Um, hmm. Like, it's not this absolute nightmare, nightmare world. Um, I mean, it is, but <laughs> there is still those moments of sort of almost solidarity of empathy and relatability. Um, moments away from the alienation. Um, and while that was, I'll say... Not me leading the direction, but that's the kind of thing I try to steer into place with the little uh, gas station uh, scene and conversation. Yeah. I can totally understand that. I mean, it, it, it feels like, I mean, those moments of warmth are... So, I mean, to, to sort of talk about the game a little bit, because I'm, I'm kind of dying to, uh, and, and then I think... I'll 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 not make you talk about that anymore because I'm sure talking about one piece of art forever is uh is frustrating. Um you know, one of the things in the game that really struck me was the way that you dealt with scene transitions, which is to say like very, very abruptly. Um it's tough to get a feel for any like specific place you are in the game because the game is very willing to just kind of throw you into a different area. Um like at a whim. Uh, which actually was really cool while I was playing it. I, I enjoyed that. I thought it was actually very fun to to have to grapple with suddenly being in a new place or suddenly having to deal with, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm not using the camera anymore. I'm using the gun. Or I look over and the tapes are missing, but the, the camera is there or the gun is there or whatever. Um, so I wonder, like, you know, when you when you dealt, when you had to come up with like scene transitions, for instance, or how long you were say in the car or uh, things like that. Like, how did you, how did you go about sort of planning that? Like how much of this is like a, a truly planned sort of thing? How much of it is just, you know, we'll do what feels right. Um, I guess one, one way of asking this is how tight is the direction? <laughs> Very tight. Okay. Um, though quite iterative. Um, mm. <clears throat> like we did a lot of does this feel too long, does this feel short playing around with things and then we found that once Chris came along and sorted out the audio for it, everything felt like it was about half as long as it did during silence so we went edited things out and extended that um, mm. but yeah there was a lot of carefully considered choreography among how the overall structure of the game is and how that interrelates to positions of cuts and lengths of cuts. Because um, Doc went to... Doc's got a film school background and I did community college film. Um, so we both came into it wanting to exploit that side of our interests. Nice. 
Um, can I ask a little bit about uh, the choice to, I mean, maybe this speaks to, to your film school uh, um, experience, the choice to make it uh, like a game you have to experience in one go? <sighs> um, that is quite as simple as getting two-thirds into, into development and realizing that I'd made some real fucking messy code and putting in a proper <laughs> safe system would be... Uh, a challenge. <laughs> I like that answer because it, it seemed to me when I was when I was playing it, I was like, "Oh, like the what happened here is uh, they wanted it to be like it, it's very filmic. It's like a it's like a moment where you have to you have to like enjoy the thing in one sitting. It's not broken up." And then I love I love getting answers where it's like, "Oh no no no, there was a much more practical reason for this. It was it wasn't us." Uh, just all the most like, interesting things in the game came out of that kind of. Uh... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Constraint. I, I like mean, that a lot. much of it is what have you got to play with? How do you make the most of it? So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, I think like you know one of the things that that struck me about the game was how much I appreciated the the things that were left unexplained, the things that were sort of treated as part of the I, I don't know, like part of the. Hmm, part of the the mise-en-scene of the game, part of the way that the game kind of uh, speaks to its players. Um, there's a lot left to the the player that isn't uh, explicit. Um, and I appreciated that a lot. I, I felt like that was something that was very unique about the game, uh, particularly in terms of horror games. Like, there seems to be, like, no clear explanation, at least upon first playthroughs, that, you know, why there is, like, you know, who are these bodies? Why are they there? What are these videotapes? Why did they do the things they do and who are you and, and all these things. Um, how hard was it to, to write it? Or I, I guess that would be more of like you say doctored the writing, but how hard was it to sort of conceptualize of this without trying to give too much away? Not that hard. Um, Great. <clears throat> like we came up with first, we um, first thing we came up with was sort of a series of disconnected vignettes, um, mm. like driving at night or, taking photos of birds. Um, And then we built upon extending narratives around those vignettes and tying a few of them together. Um, And we still ended up... That was still a very loose, disconnected swathe of experiences, especially when we had it all prototyped in um, just going through grey architecture. Um, So then it just became organically filling things out um, and trying to take these disconnected experiences and making them feel connected, which mostly came out of throwing in little motifs while we built the world up, Um, both literal motifs... um, and just sort of shared colour palettes and shared mm. pieces of sounds. Um, callbacks to extant areas of the game. Um, and while we did, we had our sort of overarching narrative laid out initially, um, there was a lot of back and forth interaction as the narrative tweaked slightly while the world filled out and. Um, yeah, it grew very organically. Nice. Um, did you feel like? Uh, well, actually, here's this. Did you did you find that there was like a clear sort of um, connection between what you were doing in Paratopic and some of your other uh, some of your other development work, particularly Tangiers? Like, is there something that is? Uh, Something that is unique to you as a developer that kind of cuts through both of these games, or do the situations of the games really determine what you do as a developer more than that? If that I makes sense. Th- yeah, I think that um, there is a lot of me and consistency between them. Like, um, to start with, sort of power topic for me was a desire to do something that was very different to what I'm doing with Tangiers. Um, mm-hmm. Very impressionist. Um, 
very loose, not much revealed about the world. Um, right down to the colour palette being a literal inversion of what we got for Tangiers. Um, <laughs> I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Um, but then, coming off of Power Topic and returning to Tangiers, I came to see a lot of through lines in terms of the intended commentary around spaces and mm. the sort of liminality verb and the sort of cybernetic thought and philosophies that are driving my side of the expression. Um, mm. As well as what I think is the strongest thing that I want to express, which is um, an alienation um, of the space, which is then sort of met with or cured by a catharsis. Um, mm. So with Paratopic, you've got lots of what the fuck is going on. Um, <laughs> right. It's then met with the eminently relatable action of shooting someone in the head. Um, <laughs> I liked I liked the shooting someone in the head part because there was so much of what is going on here that when I finally was able to, I I was like, no, no, I I can't just shoot this guy. Like, what? <laughs> that can't possibly be what I have to do. And then when I did, it was like probably more satisfying as an action than any other just like individual action of violence I've done in a video game. It was just like so fun. Yeah. Like, we oh, put... That feels really good after all this game. Like, like, gosh, I think that sequence alone probably had about six weeks of work going into it oh, <laughs> just to make the gun feel authentic and to get the, um, the characters got per body part dismemberment set up. Um, <laughs> and I... that was pretty heavy going. I bet. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, like, so one of the things people always talk about with Paratopic, and, and this is something that is not true of Tangiers, at least in the, the stuff I've seen, Tangiers doesn't look like a um, like a PS1 game to me. Um, no, no. Um, Tangiers is, um, in terms of the actual assets, it's more sort of high-end PS2, sort of mm. think Silent Hill 3 with high resolution textures and modern effects laid okay. on top. Um, going to PS1 was a creative choice and appropriate for the sort of exploration of space we wanted to give out that kind of impressionist disorientation. Yeah, I mean, was that like, was that something that you decided upon or was that something that you sort of found worked? I mean, were there other versions of the game where you were just thinking, well, you know, I'm going, we're going to do, you know, we're going to, we're going to try and do, uh, I don't know, um, uh, a version of this game that looks sort of like more in like uh, more pixelated or are we going to do a version of this game that's going to look like X, Y, or Z? I'm trying to think of other styles and completely failing. Um, but like, was this was this a choice from the get go? Was this something that defined the game from the beginning, or was this something that you sort of found yourself doing um, as you um, went? I think that came in pretty much from the start. Mm. Um, like, we didn't do the graphics pass straight away, but I had a um, folder full of PS One type graphic experiments stretching back a couple of years beforehand. Um, and I've been really impatient to try making a full game that used the aesthetic. Um, and the initial ideas around Paratopic fulfilled that opportunity. Um, <laughs> and we steered them towards one another. And I think about two weeks into development, I threw down some early, early art. I think a car was the first thing I made. Um, the car is very cool, especially sequence. the inside of the car. I thought the, uh, the 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 things you could do inside the car, like uh, the the kind of like extremely troubling and and difficult to listen to talk radio 
I, all of that really worked for me. I thought the car was fantastic. So good early asset, I think. <laughs> um, so in terms of your, your philosophy with games, I, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit more about um, the way that uh, – we, we talked a little bit about this before, uh, before the show started, but um, you talked to us a little bit about how limitation uh, works for you as a creator, particularly in terms of like – trying to speak to something that is ultimately somewhat limitless, like the, the idea of a, of a uh, frontier or um, the idea of, of uh, ceaseless exchangeability. Uh, there's a kind of like version in which capitalism is endless, but also constantly coming to its end. Um, it's a very, you know, common metaphor about financialization, but it could also be a metaphor about the, the frontier as well. Um, you know, always, always already ended, but at the same point, constantly going forward. How do you, how do you sort of speak to these like massive themes while also um, dealing with um, uh, limitations? Well, um, I think insofar as confronting those large themes, um, mm-hmm. obviously pick one facet and run with it, but um, yeah. on a design basis, um, and interestingly, I think this ties in a lot with, did you catch, uh, what's his name, Ian Bogost's latest Goose article? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I, I found it very frustrating, I will, oh, I will you did? be honest. I did. I, I, I found I... myself very in agreement with it, though I felt it fell short and lacked um, any sort of real transdisciplinary commentary and knowledge. That is usually how I feel about about Bogost's uh, work, that I that I find the, the concept interesting and then I, I sort of feel it f- stops before the finish line in, in a sense. Um, for this one, I was I was frustrated by the idea that he had found in procedure some vision of um, some vision of capital. Uh, I just I, I felt I felt it was a little too pat, a little too convenient. But I am actually very interested to hear your take on it because <laughs> I I wanted to like it more. Well, like fundamentally, what he's espousing, or as I saw it, is that he is. Repeating what the situationists said in discussion around um, play way Mm. back in, um, I think it was first mentioned in the first issue of Situationist International in 1958, I believe. Um, Okay. Are you familiar at all with situationists? I am familiar with the situationists. Uh, Okay. Yes, Um, yes, I am. Uh, so you're, you're speaking particularly of like, um, like I mean, in terms of play, less so. But I'm familiar with concepts like uh, uh, detourment, um, stuff like that. Um, so look think. at driving concepts: um, the sort of commodity colonizes social life, um, and how. Um, through debord society of the spectacle, we end up right. with this continuum where from work to fulfilling biological essentials to play, um, capital forms this continuum. It subsumes all of them um, and we end up with no real dividing boundaries. Um, okay. And I think on some levels overt... Um, Loot boxes, no one can question capital's <laughs> presence in loot boxes. Very true, yes. <laughs> um, but in other ways, really fucking insidiously, um, does capital and our um, relationship with work and how work tells us that sort of play is generally a frivolous activity, how the sort of culmination in all that really distorts our play and our consumption of play. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the fact that it's a consumption alone is a distortion. Um, one example I saw lately was... Um, I've not played Disco Elysium. Is it Elysium? I think it's Elysium. Uh, Elysium, uh, yes. Uh, I've not played Disco Elysium yet. I've not had the time aside. But I've seen crop up a couple of times within critique are not necessarily negative, but the question of the game providing sort of bad choices to the player without incentivizing them. Mm. And I can see in that the fact that we are expecting these choices to be incentivized, to be transactional, is a colonization of capital within play. Um, yeah, I can see that. I... It's that fundamental need. Um, and while, like, Bogos falls short of sort of getting that far, his initial uh, diagnosis is very close to how I try to engage with design. And in, in what way is that is that how you engage with design? That's a really, it's an extremely compelling way to put it. Well, I think so. First thing we do is that we establish that much of what we take for granted within game design um, is distorted. Um, it's distorted and it is sort of a spiritual hindrance to us. We have capital infiltrating our leisure, etc., etc., etc. That does not mm -hmm. do us any good on a spiritual level. Um, so let's find new ways to express play, um, new ways to go about things. And while my answer is not absolute, um, there's plenty of places where you can go and plenty of people who explored these topics in other media. Um, I find that most pertinent for play would be, say, um, Antonin Artaud, um, French playwright, uh, yep, theatre of cruelty. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that strive for a more intuitive and cathartic authenticity. Um, the understanding that what is taken as rational on the stage, um, what invites the sort of bourgeois observation of things is very harmful to the soul, harmful on an intuitive level. So it seeks a sort of very violent, intuitive communication um, and so my design sort of in opposition to Capsule is to pursue the sort of Artordian line of thought um, mm. at its base. Going back to Bogost, a lot of writers and critiques I've seen, not so much recently, but back when Walking Sims was something fresh to talk about, um, <laughs> was the idea that right. you cannot go further with mechanical play, that mechanical play is inherently alienating. Um, I'm pretty sure that Dan Pinchback, uh, Pinchbeck, uh, the Chinese room guy, wrote a bunch about right. that, but I was trying to look it up the other day and couldn't find a single thing about it. Um, <laughs> So maybe I imagined it, but there was a lot of walking it sims just are pure. Be a fever dream. I would be very surprised. <laughs> um, walking sims are pure and less alienating and more authentic um, because they do not engage in the artifice of mechanical play. I'm trying to sort of take mechanical play and feed it through an Artordian lens mm. to try and sustain the authenticity of like the walking sims, um, that kind of spiritual catharsis and hmm. move away from the really inherently non-diegetic aspects of gameplay which are very severing, for want of a better word. 
Um, which, going into what Bogost said, the sort of obvious level, you've got your checklists and shit like that. Uh, right, yeah. I I guess I wonder about about checklists particularly, and I can understand that. Like, I totally get worrying about that, particularly in something like Goose Game, where it's, you know, ostensibly something where you're kind of playing it and enjoying it because it's uh, different. It's sort of like it's its own thing. Um, and it gives you, you know, the exact same thing every, you know, game of the last however many years has given you. Um, but I wonder, like, how much of that is is a, a response to player needs. I, I don't know what I don't know if that's like a, a even a reasonable way to say it, but like effectively, like, you know, the idea of this non-diegetic thing being there because if it wasn't there, players would would panic. Um, and in a game that I, I imagine um, they were hoping would be, you know, a fairly runaway success and, and was. Um, but as I say that, I realize this is exactly what you took out in Imperatopic, right? <laughs> like there's no non-diegetic um, information unless you stand staring at the gun for like 10 minutes, which I did because like <laughs> I got called into the other room while I was sitting at the diner. And uh, and uh, I, when I came back, it said like just press left to like. Click on the gun. <laughs> do well, it. I don't think non-diegetic in, in itself is bad, but mm-hmm. a sort of narratively non-diegetic. Um, mm. For example, like, your inventory can be presented non-diegetically, and it probably is best to do so that way. Um, <laughs> because if I'm carrying a healing potion IRL around my belt... I can feel its weight there. I don't have to sort of stop what I'm doing, look down and get my diegetic UI up where I can now <laughs> stare at my belt and see what's hanging off it. Oh, um, right. Or, you know, so, it's, it's like you imagine a detective game where, uh, you know, in the middle of it, you have to open up your wallet uh, <laughs> to find it. Like it's just yeah, exactly. awful when you um, think about it that way. So we can take non-diegetic elements and run with them narratively so that they serve the purpose of firms of communicating your characters in a monologue. Um, most creative way I've seen that done so far in recent years was Pathologic 2, where mm. it replaces the checklist of things to do with this mind map um, of observations and occurrences. I really liked that in Path in Path Two. Also, I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah, it was such a refreshing and really fucking organic way to achieve what has always been a really jarring. Um, and well, it basically answers Bogost's <laughs> article, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and I guess I guess that's my problem with the Bogost is that I, I imagine if he played Pathologic Two he would have a similar complaint, which is to say, like, you know, isn't this just, like, isn't, aren't I still working here? Aren't I still, like, not actually playing? Isn't there a a conclusion to come to? Like, it felt more that it was about the doing as opposed to the the way it was presented. Like, when you're saying it like that, and and particularly in the terms of, of, like, uh, film criticism uh, with with regards to diegesis, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it, in fact, like specifies the critique uh, around Goose Game, which was the other thing I, I sort of had a hard time with. Like, I didn't understand why it was particularly Goose Game that had his goat. Um, I'm not a Goose Game, like, fanatic or <laughs> defender even. I just, I didn't really understand what the point was of him focusing on that other than that it was the game of the moment. But if it is, in fact, about, like, work versus play or uh, to get, like, maybe a little bit too eggheady, like art versus sort of a commodity. That makes sense to me that it would be sort of like this immersive feel, like the idea of like being in the game and not being taken out. Um, did you see that as what Bogus was arguing? Did I, did I happen to just miss it or? It's yeah, certainly I think possible. so. But I, I, I didn't I, read it super well. I, <laughs> no, me neither. Um. I'll cop to that. I, yeah. <laughs> I skimmed it, shook my head, nodded simultaneously, and uh, yeah. moved on with my life. That's um, what you do with anything in the Atlantic, I think. I think that's just good advice. Um, like, to go back, I don't think that sort of... Going back to Pathologic 2, I don't think that answers Bogost's questions or where I agree with him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it does show progress um, mm. to truly answer Bogus questions or the idea of how do we detach video game play from capital's tendrils. Um, those questions haven't been answered and they probably won't be answered for quite some time because to answer that we've got to transcend current common knowledge design several iterations into the future yeah and 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 in that way it sounds a lot like a question about art under capital um which i'm much more comfortable asking because i spent you know most of my phd asking that question um and that strikes me as something that like i wonder i wonder if like maybe Maybe that is ultimately the question where it's like, how do you, how do we imagine games once uh, after the end of capitalism? How do you imagine games outside of their current framework if the framework is profitability? Um, and that seems like a tough question. A good mm. question, but a hard one. I mean, that depends entirely on what our post-capital society looks like. Very um. true. <laughs> it seems like that is not a, not a consensus at this point. Do we uh, do we end up with a situation where Steam now looks like the front page of Itch and is just a host of micro games and delightful little minuscule moments of expression, or I know do we have anarcho syndicalist juggernauts that are still producing EA style games? Well, yeah, <laughs> or, or you know, does Dead Cells become the new EA? Right? Yeah. Kind of. um, I mean, in in creating something that is aphoristic as opposed to sort of like narratively cohesive, and I I don't use cohesive as a way of, I feel like that needs to be said because like most review sites will use cohesion in terms of narrative as a way of saying whether or not a narrative is good. Um, That's not what I mean. I just mean cohesion in terms of literally just the description of does it tell you how it holds together? Um, I don't think Paratopic does that, and I think it's it's better for not being cohesive in that regard. Um, but in creating something more aphoristic as opposed to cohesive or directing of the player, I mean, do you think you're sort of getting to something that is outside of expectation enough that it's producing something new, something like that the player may not expect under current regimes of game making? That's the intent. Okay. Um, that was my next question. And is that it was that a goal? <laughs> not so much with Paratopic. Paratopic was dipping our toes into new things. Um, okay. Fundamentally, Paratopic is just an edgy cover game of 30 Flights of Loving. So <laughs> I don't want to claim it as anything revolutionary. Um, <laughs> but moving forwards. Paratopic was the learner pool, um, and Great. moving forward, those are the horizons we try to reach. I'm even more excited about Tangiers. Can, yeah, <laughs> just to sort of put on my reporter hat for a second, can you talk to us about uh, Tangiers and how, wh- where, where, where you're at with that, what you're working on there, what that's, how that's coming together for you? Yeah, obviously, you don't have to go into specifics, but it's, it's had a long dev cycle, but a very exciting one as well. Hmm. That it has. Um, so Tangiers basically, uh, it got funded from Kickstarter in whatever year it was, 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a rough first year filled with every stray wrongness happening. Um, and then my life bottomed out and collapsed and I'd spent several years on the streets. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, made Paratopic to get back on my feet and then it's been a... A slow journey of standing up and keeping on with Tangiers. Mm. Oh, pardon. Um, and at the moment, in terms of the dev cycle, we are just looking at how we can merge folk who worked on Paratopic with folk who worked on Tangiers and get us ready to go forward for the last um, stretch of development on that. Nice. And and how do you see like where is the where is the sort of like uh, progression for you like I don't it doesn't have to be thematic or even um, material but like 
where do you see sort of the connection, progression, uh, disconnection? I don't know. However, you want to imagine relationship between uh, the two games. Like, where does where does if if Paratopic is the kiddie pool uh, or the learner pool? Like, what what do you see? What do you envision Tangiers doing that is different? Um, proper gameplay mechanics, really. Um, <laughs> like the the idea from Tangiers for quite some time was to create a game with fairly in-depth traditional gameplay mechanics but feels like a walking sim still has that authenticity and immediacy and unfettered interfacing with the world um and so that's the progression there against paratopic okay that makes sense i and to sort of once more be the be the Bogosta antagonist, <laughs> you see then the so for you gameplay specifically gameplay, which seems to me that what Bogost is arguing about in that piece and saying you know like I don't this gameplay stuff feels like the same stuff we have to do to kind of like produce labor and produce like not produce labor excuse me produce uh, commodities it feels like labor gameplay to you and then particularly gameplay mechanics are part of the successful video game as you see it yes um i think that engagement um and going back to our todd um the violence inherent in that kind of play even if it's mm. non-violent play um it is still a forceful action um mm. i find that to be vital is it the forcefulness of the action that you find to be vital? Or just the action itself? I mean, uh, it, I guess the, another way to ask that is, can you have an action that is not forceful? It, it strikes me that the way you described it there, it could be that too. Or Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. And like, I think I would almost count the... Um, interaction of the gas station guy in Power Topic to fall within this category because it has the sort of humanizing contrast um, mm. to the rest of the game. That's interesting. I yeah, actually, that's that's a really good example because it's that is not a it's not a particularly like aggressive um, moment in the game, but it is a moment in the game where I felt it's force much more than others, I would say. Like, philosophically, it's a confrontation against the alienation outside that space. Mm -hmm. um, I also thought that the game not giving you any of the of the places where you could actually follow up on his uh, conversation was, was uh, I mean, it helped me sort of internalize the thematics where, like, oh, I'm asking this guy about burgers. I wonder if I'm going to go to this burger place. And it's like, oh, you, you can't pull off the highway. <laughs> Uh, that was that was cool in the moment. I, I was I was pleased that that was the case. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, so let me ask you uh, a kind of fun question, um, and then I'll ask you a serious one, and we can we can uh, I can let you go. the The fun question is: What games this year have uh, have struck your fancy, like either philosophically and and sort of like in the ways that they're doing stuff that you find really valuable in your own work, or just like games that you have fun with. Who uh games this year I've not really played this many games. I've been consumed by labor. Um <laughs> Ah what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> um well Pathologic 2, which is a game Fantastic changing game. game, I think. Um, yeah. it should have gotten far more think pieces written about it, I'll say that much. Um and then there was, uh, I can't remember if it was this year, but for the sake of argument, let's say it was. Uh, sure, years are, I mean, you know, what, what's a year? Ah, uh, shit. Let me just... What's the name? Oh, yes. Um, Christoph Frey's Space Between. Hmm. Um, I haven't played that one. A very art house narrative on the matter of space. 
Um, shares PS1 visuals as Paratopic did. That's what grabbed my attention. But it's cool. a beautiful, dreamlike, surreal narrative that carries a lot of um, shared influences with me. I found it very pertinent. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, I will absolutely try that. Um, cool. Yeah, I... I... I tend to agree that my favorite games of the last year have been the ones that have um, been more evasive, for lack of a better word. I feel like Pathologic 2 is fantastic, and it also is like, it also does not immediately give itself to you. Uh, you have to work pretty hard to, to, to find the, is it, you work pretty hard to live in the world of, of uh, uh, Path 2. Um, Oh, yeah, it's that, not that game's all about making you work. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not like, it's not even in a mean way. Like, it's not like, Oh, you know, like, you know, get good or something like that. It truly is like, you just have to, you have to figure it out. Like if you're going to live there, you got to figure it out. Um, I find, I find that trend, uh, very cool that that's like a thing that's happening where, where it's not necessarily about like, you know, get good at, um, uh, rhythm or, 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 or quick muscle reaction. Although I like that too, uh, but get good in terms of like, you know, you just kind of have to get to know this world in order to survive here. I think. Oh yeah. It's quite comfortable stepping away from the whole games are about gameplay. Games are about fun. Um, yeah. This, I like just learning this space. I also, uh, yeah, actually that's, that's exactly right. Like I, I'm very pleased that games are willing to be, uh, not fun. Um, and I know that that sounds like I'm making a joke, but I, I really am not. I, I, I like when games are not obsessed with being fun um, or OK with being maybe even maybe even perceived as boring. Um, OK, last question. Uh, where do you where are you hoping that your work uh, takes you thematically? Let's not I, I won't I won't make you put a pin on like what will be produced in. You know, it's not. This isn't your your quarterly review or something. That would, <laughs> I don't want to be like like that. Um, but where do you see your your development taking you philosophically in the next, uh, let's say, year? Ooh, um, for the next year, let's extend that to say three years. Great. Um, What's your three year plan? I'll just. I've, Gonna get this up to corporate in a minute, so you know. <laughs> uh, my three-year plan for now is to wrap up um, the sort of exploration of space um, that I am engaging in with Tangiers, and then mm. expand that. Hopefully, I would love to do a sequel to Paratopic um, that acts as a counterpoint to Tangiers old world modernity to present us with a new world um, equivalency to that um, so that we have two partner pieces going forwards so in a way you're sort of imagining your games forming a kind of thematic um, I'm trying to count here uh, triptych yes um, at the moment and then I, um, I have no idea what I'm going to do probably I don't know some kind of uh anthropomorphic animal puzzle platformer after all that just to uh, really throw people off which is uh, will of course also be thematically consistent because <laughs> they don't know <laughs> well that sounds great I, I'm, I'm super excited to see it all especially the animal platformer um, uh, Jessica thank you so much for being on Is where can people follow you where can people find your work uh, you can find me on twitter at oysterfake um, I like that that at it's a it's a fun <laughs> at. Yeah, oh, uh, used to play Call of Duty one at a cyber cafe, um, okay. and for reasons unbeknownst to me, nobody else who attended the cyber cafe knew how to change their name, and <laughs> so I was just oyster. And I logged on one day, and all twelve people in the room have Oyster 1, Oyster 2, Oyster 3. <laughs> so I threw the fake on there to uh, I like amuse it. myself. That's, that's um, a really, really good uh, origin story for your app. I've, I've, I've never actually heard one that, that was uh, 
as cogent, like a, a narrative as that, which, I mean, based on your philosophy, is kind of funny that the uh, that you had a cogent narrative for that. Um, but um, cool. So yeah, find me at Oyster Fake, and uh, you can continue following my uh, incoherent ramblings there as well. It's a good place to follow. I I enjoy it. You 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 thread that line that I like so well between politics and and gaming. Um, I think you you accomplish uh, considering both in in the ways they need to be considered, uh, which is rare. Um, and people can buy your work on Steam and Itch, right? Yeah, Steam and Itch. Ah, uh, what's me? We are arbitrarymetric.itch.io. Um, okay. And of course, while I've been talking myself for the past hour or so, um, of course, a big shout out to Doc and Chris, um, who I produced Paratopic with. It was very mm. much a product of product of us equally. It seems like a. I mean, it, it, it seemed like a very, very like powerfully um, collaborative game. Oh, definitely. Um, almost an exquisite corpse in how we, uh, we drew over each other's work and then uh, joined the dots and uh, threw it all away and drew it back up. <laughs> hey, I mean, why not? Um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I was fascinated to see the ways in which it, it... I think, like, one of the things that I liked most about Paratopic and what I will end with is, is saying, like, when everyone does play it, and they should, um, if they haven't yet, uh, watching the credits is a uniquely rewarding experience because you get to see just where everything kind of came from, and it's not, it's not exactly where you think it would have. Um, I, I didn't, I would have thought you were more involved in the writing, and then talking to you, I'm realizing why you were and weren't. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's so. It's such I a, think it's one a, of the um, the proudest things I got in terms of feedback and how that applied to the collaborative nature of the game was when people said that kind of thing, that mm. the things people thought were my contributions to the game were actually Doc's and a lot of what they thought was Doc was actually me riffing off of his sort of creative energy. <laughs> I found it was, it was a really healthy coming together... Um, and it was very satisfying to see um, those kinds of responses which said that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine. Well, everyone should go play Paratopic. And uh, Jessica, thank you so much for being on. This has been really fun. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. <laughs>